Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In the Barrytown Pentology, Ruddy Doyle captured urban and suburban Dublin life and pubs, a snapshot of the 80s and 90s. In his later work, the pubs mentioned and described become more contemporary, and we get to find out what the author and his characters think about a more modern Dublin. This is part two of Pubs in the Work of Roddy Doyle. Welcome to Publin, a podcast about the culture, history and heritage of pubs at home and abroad. Last week I took you through Doyle's novels and movies like Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha, The Commitments, The Snapper, The Van and The Guts. There were occasional references to pubs in these books, some of which were fictional. There was the odd scene where characters would have a chat in a pub, as much as any book would feature the pub as a setting. In later Ruddy Doyle works, the pub becomes a lot more important, put right up front and woven into the narrative to an extent that the works are nearly as much about the pub setting as they are about the lives of the characters. In this episode, I'm going to take you through the novels Love and Smile, and the book and then stage play Two Pints. Can you guess where that one is set? So we'll begin with Smile. It's a book that follows a middle-aged man as he rediscovers the world following a breakup from his wife, who is famous in Ireland as a well-liked television personality. He's a writer with a small W, having shown promise earlier in his career, but ultimately never really going on to have the career he promised and never finishing the books that he started. He's beginning a new life in an apartment block and reinventing himself and his social life. Part of his journey of exploration is his finding of a new local pub. His first local pub, for that matter. He would drink, but not that often. But now he had a reason to find a local and a home from home, given that he had nobody else in his apartment to talk to. This was his first time that he'd gone to the pub alone, and so he began to bring a book or his iPad for something to read. This was before he'd made any acquaintances in the pub. Donnelly's would be my local. I trained myself to feel that it was mine. I listened out to hear the names of the staff. 
My barman, the lad who was on most evenings when I wandered in, was called Carl, or Carlo, by those men and women who seemed to know him quite well. I kept it at Carl. I'd moved in in the summer, so it was all done in daylight. Waking up, getting out, coming home, climbing the stairs, opening a window, cooking the dinner, strolling down to Donnelly's. A pub in daylight is a different place. It's less of a pub. It's a good time to start, a good time to move in. I could sit back for a while and watch the room become a pub. I'd nod at men I'd seen before. Not being of the same age or situation as the protagonist in Smile, I can't say I've ever walked into a pub with the intention of making it my home, or getting to know the barman or the other customers. It's an interesting insight into the mind of someone who understands that they need socialisation and know that isolation isn't good for somebody who already lives alone. But the character isn't an alcoholic or even a big drinker. The choice of the pub as his outlet is simply because he lives in Dublin, he's male and that's just what's done. Several times in this book, and in others, Doyle's characters mention that four pints is a good figure, so as to not feel too many after-effects. He says, I didn't really do the drugs, and a little man inside me slapped the walls of my stomach whenever I tried to go past four pints. And later on, he restates the opinion. Four was enough. You could feel a bit pissed. You'd had a bit of a night, but you'd feel okay in the morning. It's a theory that I myself came up with independently of these books, and I'd imagine there's plenty of others who have come to the same conclusion through hard-fought experience. To prove my point, I had four pints just last night, call that my cut-off, and here I am writing this script and reading it into a microphone. Absolutely grand. Well, maybe a little bit tired. Ugh... The book cuts back and forth between his reminiscences of his life in school and in his early 20s. The school memories are jogged by a recurring encounter with a man in Donnelly's, his new local pub, who he can't seem to remember but insists that they went to school together. A classic example of why some people don't go back to their old stomping grounds, you're liable to bump into someone you don't want to talk to and who is only delighted to ignore social cues and bend the ear off you for hours. Recalling his early career as a writer after college, he recounts a meeting in a pub near the Haypenny Bridge with a man named Jerry Finglas, who accosted him and questioned him about the contents of a gig review that he deemed unfair or mean. I'd turned him into a joke, he told himself every time he stood on the side of a stage waiting to go on, because I envied him. No one else had paid much attention to what I'd written. They laughed at it. Jim Morrison meets Joe Dolan. But I thought it was quite affectionate, an Irish thing, and forgot about it. More and more, people were coming to watch him sweat. But the sweat was Joe Dolan's now, and he tried to stop it. He started to wipe his neck with a white towel. I'd called him a better, taller Bono. I wrote that his band, the Liffey Snakes, had crawled out of them's grave. I said he didn't sing about sex. He was sex. He was Jim Morrison meets Joe Dolan. He was perfect, and I made him ridiculous. He died ten years ago. Victor, our narrator, in another flashback, remembers meeting his future wife in Kyo's pub on South Anne Street. I have to include it for the rather cruel description of the bar staff, and I do note that this scene occurred in the late 70s or early 80s, so it's a different set of barmen working there today. All handsome men, I'm sure. Why didn't you wait inside? Too much hassle, she said. What do you mean? I was holding the door for her. I'd remembered my manners. Thank you, sir. And I knew I'd asked a stupid question. Every man in the house was staring at her, even the seven dwarfs, the scabby-headed little men who worked behind Kyo's bar. I was the only man in the shop not looking at her. We went down to the room at the back and people squashed to give us room. 
to give her a room. I went out to the bar and she was chatting to a gang of people when I came back in with our pints. Rachel drank pints of Guinness. She was listening to another girl, woman, nodding her head, putting her hair back behind her ear so she could catch the words, and I thought I'd lost my chance. She found better company. The guy beside the girl was looking at Rachel. He wasn't a guy. He was a man. He wasn't older, but he looked it. Somehow. Because he stayed still. Because he was wearing a black coat. Because he looked like he could have been living in any decade. I found room for the pints and the formica table and sat beside, dropped myself beside Rachel. And she turned to me. Our legs, my right, her left, were pressed against each other. She shifted slightly so she was leaning into me and I watched her drink for the first time. Her leg, her shoulder, her breast were pressing against me and now her chin almost touched mine while she knocked back a fifth of her pint, leaned out and put the glass back down on the table and came back up to me. Victor describes himself as not a very good drinker, not as good as his wife anyhow. He says that he didn't really get drunk, he just got filled. Uh, Any Guinness drinker can sympathise with that feeling. The four-pint maxim rearing its head again. After a semi-regular routine of going to Donnelly's, he gets to know, or at least to nod at, some of the men in the pub, engaging them in the odd bit of chatter about sports or the news when it comes on the TV. It's generally thought that making friends as you get older is a bit of a difficult affair, as people have solidified their friend groups or struggle to keep in contact with those that they already have. For Victor, it's almost like a return to school where you have to sniff out those most likely to be your pals. It's not as nervous an exercise as in school, but the elation at being welcomed into a group is just as strong. One of the men was looking my way. I gave him the chin lift. Hello. He nodded, grimaced. One of his friends turned on a stool and looked. Ah, good man. I was in. Are you all right for a drink? I asked. He looked at his own pint. I think we're all right, he said. No, fuck it. Go on ahead. Three pints, is it? Just three. No one of the jacks are gone for a smoke? No, he said. It's just us tonight. Three more pints as well, Carl. Thanks. The man on the stool pushed it back and I became the fourth corner. Liam, Pat, Harry. They were the men there that night. I'm Victor, by the way. I googled you. And? Fuck all. We laughed. I paid for the pints and handed them around. They felt cold and great in my hand. I'd be drinking four pints before closing time. I was in the round. I was delighted. I really was. My gut, my body, felt open ready to take its share. The simplicity of men in a pub, the conversation, the sports, the same drink, is juxtaposed with the description of a group of women of the same age who come in on a less regular basis, but who light up the place when they do. I could hear them, deciding what they'd have. I love that about women. All those lived years and they still didn't know what they'd have to drink when they walked into a pub, or they pretended not to know, and I loved the effort that went into it. They wouldn't be going wild, these women. They'd just add screams to the laughter coming up to closing time. And they'd flirt, slightly, with my new friends, on the way back from the toilet or a smoke in the beer garden. This book is more than a series of simple memories or simple school days or interactions in the pub. There's a lot more depth to it, and as with Roddy Doyle's work, the humour is countered by the tragic in parts. In his other work, the pub was where people went to be with their family or pals to sort out a situation or talk about their community and the immediate world around them. In this book, the pub is a new place to be discovered, where friends are made and old traumas rear their heads. Smile from 2020 is, for me, the Roddy Doyle book about pubs. 
It is basically one long pub crawl set between two pals in the modern day and another long pub crawl set in their youth, each story being told side by side. The amount of pubs mentioned in this book, some of them in fantastic detail, is huge. Our protagonist is home after living in London for decades to look after his ailing father. His pal, who he hadn't met up with or shared a pint with in a while, joins him. He himself has recently left his wife for a woman with whom he had a brief romance when they were in their early 20s. It's about death, divorce, falling in love, regret and pints. While most of the other pubs in Doyle's work are suburban locals, this book features nearly exclusively city centre pubs that would be more familiar on the whole to the pint-drinking populace. I would call this his love letter to Dublin pubs, in which he shows a fairly intimate and deep knowledge of all of these places. So Ruddy himself must be fond of at least the occasional drop. Four maximum, of course, and maybe a John Wayne are thrown in. The fourth chapter is a beautiful description of a well-run and well-kitted-out pub from the first word to the last, and I highly recommend you read the book, if only for that chapter alone. Our first trip to a pub with Joe and Davy comes in their younger days when town was their stomping ground. They enjoy some casual pints around the city and they find a nice home in Sheehan's of Chatham Street. This was at a time when pubs had to close for an hour or two on a Sunday, referred to as the holy hour, when pubs would have to be emptied out so that theoretically people could go to mass. The two lads left the pub after a few pints during this period and had a wander around the Dandelion Market that existed where the Stevens Green shopping centre is now. The lads made the mistake of not using the jacks before they left and were so stuck for a toilet. This was a mistake that they would come in older age not to repeat. After the holy hour was over and a toilet had been found in a public building, Joe and Davy fall in love for the first time. There was no television, no horse racing, no radio, no music. No one looked our way. The man with the ponytail was reading a magazine. It sat on the counter between his gin and tonic and an ashtray. The musicians were talking quietly. I didn't know it then, but the College of Music was around the corner, on Chatham Row. I heard strings and a trumpet coming from an open window the next time I passed it, the following Monday, when I was off on a wander during the lunch break. I'd been walking past the building for months. There was no barman. We stepped closer to the counter. We passed the musicians, went further, deeper, into the room, and took two stools at the end of the bar. We sat and saw him. He was down on his hunkers, filling the lowest shelf with bottles of Britvic orange. He heard us and turned, stood up, groaned, and smiled. It was the first time a barman had smiled at us. Gentlemen, he said. He was happy to see us. We stayed there for months. This is George's pub, which seemed to also exist on or near Chatham Street, and it became their haven and social hub. The pub brought out feelings in them that they didn't know they were capable of feeling towards a pub. A certain instinct was ignited in them by the perfection of this place. I love this, Joe said, he whispered. Me too, yeah. I hadn't read a newspaper in a pub before, but this was where I was going to do it. I hadn't sat by myself and drunk a slow pint. I'd never had a pint alone. I would now, here. I'd sit and look in front of me. I wouldn't shift on my stool or over my shoulder. I'd be a man. I didn't say this. I didn't think this. I felt it. The two held an immediate reverence for the pub, and they had entered a new stage of pint drinking. Gone would be the days of getting messy and being messers. This was a place where they would enjoy behaving and would be expected to be gentlemen. And gentlemen was how George, the proprietor, would address them when he was about to take their order. As Joe put it, We didn't need to cower or snarl, turn our backs on people who wouldn't have noticed. We didn't have to make our own noise. It was a dream. It had all the qualities of a good one. 
It was the drink, I know, the holes and fuzz it could give to the surroundings. Nothing was sudden or unwanted. There was nothing beyond the afternoon. It was the perfect state, and I know now, decades later, it was only possible on a Saturday afternoon in George's. This was where they first came to know the position of landlord and barman as a trade that, when done properly, could make any person, prince, princess or pauper, feel comfortable and at home. There was a community based around this pub and the sensation of comradeliness was in the air, all stemming back to George behind the bar, who set the tone and allowed it to permeate out among the customers to fill the bar. People had been coming back years just for this feeling, the young and the old, the local and the blow-in, all because of the stewardship of George. It's a great tribute to the publican as host and shows that a bar can be beautiful, but it's the manner of the welcome that really sets a pub apart. Showing how dirty other pubs in Dublin could be at the time, the lads discussed between them their amazement at the high quality of the toilets in the pub, astounded that it's well lit and that there's even a bulb in the socket. They remarked that you could eat your dinner off the floor. Clearly the state of pub toilets was generally poor, but George took as much pride in the comfort of his customers in the toilet as he did in the lounge. We jump back to the present day where the two were having a meal in a new restaurant in Clontarf near the Wooden Bridge. After a bit of arm twisting, they agree to go for a pint in the Shed's pub. Joe is reluctant and feels he should be going home to be with his father. But Davy presses on, eager to talk about the new woman in his life, using the conversation as therapy of a kind. The lads had had a bit of wine with their meal, so they already had a little bit in the tank before they started their scoops in the Shed's. After a few pints, they became a bit louder and their conversations veered towards intruding on the peace of others in the pub. After several requests for quiet and warnings from the barman, they were asked to finish up their pints and not offered another. Having learned the lessons of their youth, they asked to use the jacks before being kicked out. That is a form of wisdom and brazenness you can't learn in college. Incidentally, the two pints they had came to under a tenner at this time, 2020. I haven't been in the sheds recently, but I'd imagine they've gone over the fiver mark as just about every other pub has recently. After further arm twisting and the lure of creamy pints, the two agree to go into town. Davy is insistent on going back to George's for old time's sake, but there's a sense that Joe is reluctant to go back somewhere he held so fondly in his heart for fear that it won't live up to those old memories. And so they chose to go to the palace on Fleet Street for a pint, and another, and another, and so on in that fashion. They remark on the quality of the pub, and also what the jacks used to be like here, and elsewhere. He ordered two pints from a passing barman. He looked around and at me. Good pub, he said. Yeah, remember the jacks back in the day? No. Ah, you do. Down the stairs, into the black hole of Calcutta. The light never worked. You just hoped you were pissing in the right direction. They were all like that. That's true, he said. We've come a long way, so, yeah. Further on in the chapter, Joe has a look at the modern-day toilet situation. Joe had gone downstairs, to the black hole of Calcutta. I'd been down already, it was well lit, almost beautiful, probably protected. It was like descending into the 19th century. They were well and truly at home in this pub, their louder conversation and occasional exclamations or profane outbursts being drowned out by the hubbub of the busy pub. They even savoured and admired their pints, possibly only as a returning emigre can. I watched the pint settle as if it was the first time I'd seen it happen, the tan darkening to black and the arrival of the collar. I couldn't help myself. It's a fucking miracle, really, isn't it? He knew what I was talking about. It is, he agreed. 
Everything about their experience in the pub felt like more. More conversation. More pints. And the pints had a way of telling them when a fresh one was required. When Joe sipped on a warm pint, he remarked that it protested and didn't want to be drank. And then moved on to a new pint that smelt good and felt cold. The pair were, off and on, having a good time and frustrating each other with their stories, behaviour and disagreements over whose memory was correct. Are we having another? Go on. The barman didn't hesitate. We hadn't crossed a line. I wanted to stay there forever. I wanted to go back down to the toilet and stay down there. I wanted to stay with Joe. I wanted to kill Joe. That's a good description of what I'd refer to as the social goo, where you're not focused on the pints, but rather the exhilaration of the atmosphere and being caught up in that time and place, focused solely on the moment with that other person. They leave the palace in search of other pastures, stopping in for a pit stop, piss stop in Neary's, another place that they used to duck into for a pint. Neary's is depicted as it is, a pub that has a background noise of conversations, but is a fairly respectable place where people don't get out of order and certainly don't sing or raise their voices. Here they're once more requested to lower their voices by the barman, a young lad wearing a white shirt and dicky bow, a traditional that is still upheld in the pub today. Joe goes on an internal rant about the pub and secrets held by the streets of Dublin and the stools within those pubs that he describes as the shy man's heaven. He describes his Dublin as a string of pubs connected by streets and lanes, the streets in plain sight but secret. Poolbeg Street, Sackville Place, Fleet Street, Essex Street, Dame Lane, Wicklow Street, Exchequer Street, South William Street, Chatham Street, Chatham Road, Duke Street, South Anne Street, Duke Lane, Georgia Street, Fade Street, Drury Street, Stephen Street, Coppinger Road, Johnson's Court, South King Street. The streets were sometimes crowded, sometimes deserted, but only we knew why they were there. Their real, hidden purpose. They got us to Mulligan's, Bowes, the Sackville Lounge, the International, the Stag's Head, the Dame Tavern, the Long Hall, the Dawson Lounge, Neary's, Rice's, Sheehan's, the Hogan Stand, Grogan's, Kyo's, the Duke, the Palace... George's, the one big pub, the Dublin pub, the light, the smoke, the other men. Hearing that passage aloud is like the last few seconds of Iron the Veen at an Ireland match when the passion and emotion within you is at its highest. Or maybe that's just me. The book shows that Dublin pubs are far from dead and that there are plenty of good upstanding pubs still in existence today where people of all ages can go for a jar and meet old pals or make new ones. The pair do also share some laments about the city and a taxi on the way home. We never made it to the long haul, said Joe. No, next time, he said. Yeah, great pub. Yeah, smashing pub, said the driver. My dad, God rest him, lived in there. Is that right? Oh yeah, said the driver. Lived in the place he did. More than once my mother, God be good to her, sent me down to get him. Was he all right with that? Joe asked. Ah, he was. He just preferred the pub to the house. And he wasn't alone there. No, a lot of men would have shared that preference. They would, said Joe, and still would. After crossing over the Liffey, Davy breaks the news to Joe that the Sackville Lounge has closed and hasn't reopened. A fact that depresses the two of them and that they say makes no sense. It was an excellent pub when it was open until recently and looks to not have had any work done to it in the intervening years. We still hold on to hope that it might reopen one day. 
The final work, or works, that we want to include started off life as social media posts that then made their way to book format and eventually into a stage play. Roddy Doyle began to share snippets of conversations between two men on bar stools in a pub, posting them occasionally on Facebook. The two men would opine on the death of Colonel Gaddafi, the day when Fernando Torres scored a goal, or what David and Victoria Beckham called their kids. We would affectionately call this pub talk or shite talk, and Roddy Doyle has given us three books worth of these musings in the form of two pints, two pints more, and two for the road. The works eventually made their way through Doyle's mind and into the form of a stage play, with the conversations hanging off the narrative hook of one of the men's health problems. The play was produced by the Abbey Theatre in 2018, with Liam Carney and Philip Judge playing the characters known only as One and Two. The play did eventually make its way to the stage of the Abbey Theatre with a full conventional set, but before that, the play went on the road around the city and was performed in pubs in Dublin and around the country. Some of the first performances were in the Flowing Tide, just across the road from the theatre on Abbey Street, and in the Foxhound Inn in Kilbarrick. Roddy Doyle is from Kilbarrick, and the pub was famously used in the film adaptation of his book, The Van. The Vintners Federation of Ireland were clearly delighted with the prospect of Roddy Doyle's work being performed in pubs around the country and sponsored the tour, which stopped in pubs in Carlow, Louth, Longford and Derry. On putting the show on in a pub, Roddy Doyle said, When I wrote it, I didn't envisage it going on in pubs. I thought it'd be in a theatre, to be honest. But when the idea was put to me, it made facile sense to me for a start. Well, that's funny. But then when I thought about it, it did make sense. From a royalty's point of view, I wish it was going on in the O2 or whatever it's called these days in front of 20,000 people instead of 57 in a pub. But on the other hand, it's great and it's part of the adventure. I think one of the things that makes me quite excited is not just the new play, but the fact that the new play is being put on in a context that's unfamiliar to me. I don't think I've ever seen a play in a pub. In Roddy Doyle's contemporary work, he has really embraced the idea of the Irish pub being alive and vibrant, not just in characters' memories, but also in real time. He shows that the Irish pub, the Dublin pub, is well and truly alive and a place for conversations and friendships to flourish. Not only have two of his books been largely set in pubs, but his work is also now performed in pubs. They're as central to his work as they are to the social lives of the real-life dubs that he depicts. It's been a real pleasure putting these two episodes together. I've read seven books and 1,700 pages, watched three movies and three documentaries, read one play, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. No doubt there's more pubs to find in the work of Roddy Doyle, and maybe we'll have a part three at some point in the future. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Publin Podcast. If you have any more pubs from Roddy Doyle novels, I'm all ears, and you can tell me, John, about them via email at publin.ie.com at gmail.com. I have to make a correction from last week's episode. The Cedar Lounge is not in Donamede and is in fact, of course, in Rohini. Apologies. Thanks very much to Tara for sending in her memories of childhood in Kilbarrick and what the works of Roddy Doyle meant to her. That's all from this week, but I'll be back, of course, next week with another episode. Thanks for listening, and as always, Slauncha.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.